You guys remember this movie, uh, Inside Out? Yeah, it was, a, it was a great movie. It came out several years ago, put out by Pixar, and uh, we actually did a thing in the summer, we talked about it, but the central idea of this movie, there's this young woman, 11-year-old girl named Riley, and Riley is a, a hockey player, and her family and her, they live up on the East Coast, and Riley's this happy girl and, and is in this great place, and the central character really in this movie is one of her emotions, joy, and the other characters are supporting cast, fear, anger, joy, sadness, and, and disgust. And, and it's really told from the perspective of Joy's emotions, or from Riley's emotions, and Joy's a central figure. Until one day when her dad announces that they're going to move. They're going to move from the East Coast and go all the way to the West Coast. And this sort of sends Riley, you know, spinning. And, and she starts to have some of these other emotions like fear and, and, and sadness. And the emotion joy is like, no, 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 no. Riley's a happy girl. Riley's a happy girl, and we can't have any sadness creep in. And sadness starts to creep in to, to joy, and, and joy's like, nope, not going to happen. Here's a circle, sadness, you need to stand right here. There's no, really, I don't even know why you exist, is what she says, you know, because sadness is not a really good emotion to joy. And, and so Riley tries to, as best she can, force herself to be happy because that's who she's told she is. She's the happy girl. And so, but all this does is, con, is, is create this discontent within her. And there's all this dissonance within her. And she's feeling this sadness and she doesn't know how to deal with it. And the, and the breakthrough comes in the movie when Riley starts to actually give in and, and admit that she's sad. And she sits down and she actually finally tells her mother and her father that she's sad. And she's really a little bit apprehensive because she doesn't want to disappoint them. She's their happy girl. And, and, and they, they've seen this thing going on inside her and they don't know what it is. And when she finally comes to them and admits that she's sad, that she's had to move and leave all her friends, she then gets the opportunity to be comforted and, and reminded that she's loved and and at that moment, Riley experiences a deeper level of joy than she's ever experienced. It's not just this happy girl, but there's this joyful girl because she has parents who care for her. She was able to express her sadness to her parents and experience in the relationship of parent and child true joy, knowing that you're loved and you're cared for and that, that just because you're sad doesn't make you less than. And I think we can learn something from this movie. Because Pixar does a great job of expressing to us that really to be human, there's going to be sadness and there's going to be joy. There's going to be moments of sadness and moments of joy. And I think you could argue that you cannot truly have joy without sadness. How do you know what joy is if you haven't experienced sadness? How do you know what hot is if you haven't experienced cold? How do you know what dark is if you haven't experienced light. I don't believe you can experience true joy unless you've really understood sadness. In fact, we see in Scripture that Jesus himself felt this. We're told that when Lazarus died, Jesus came to his tomb, and, and seeing Lazarus in the tomb, Jesus wept. And now that, that really causes some scholars or some people to kind of get nervous. It's like, whoa, 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 Jesus was joy. Jesus was happy. He was God. He, he couldn't cry. 
But yet we see clearly in Scripture that he did. You know, I think sometimes that view that maybe he didn't comes from like an 11-year-old understanding of joy, right? That as Christians, we have the best story. Well, we do. We have the best story. But, and because we have the best story, we should be the happiest of all people. And then we should be happy all the time, right? If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Yeah, right. That should be us all the time. And, and, if, and if we're sad, if we're, if we're down-faced or whatever, it's like, well, then you just don't have enough faith. You haven't tried hard enough. Maybe you haven't read the story enough. Because if you read the story, you'd know there's really no room for sadness. You should be happy, and the world needs happiness. Happy people. But I think when we do that, we sort of exclude ourselves from humanity. And I think we exclude ourselves from the truth of Scripture. And I think sometimes the reason we do that is because when we look at this book, we miss something really important. That this book is about real people, ordinary people, like you and I, who experience sadness and joy and conflict. And there's chaos in their world, and they're trying to navigate their way through it. And this book, this collection of stories, this collection of historical people, and, and God's writing with them, help us navigate this world, help us make sense of this world. And what kind of help would this be if it didn't explain sadness, if it didn't explain sorrow, if it didn't help us navigate that and just told us to act like it doesn't exist and try really hard just to be happy because you've got a really good story. You just don't know it. It wouldn't make sense. It would exclude this story, make this story nonsense. And really what happens is, and we've done it, we turn this book into a religion. I mean, the stories in this book really birth the religion, but it's not about a religion. Jesus came not to start a new religion. He came to establish a new relationship with mankind and to make it possible for God to, to be with us and for us to be with him. Jesus came to establish a new relationship. And in relationships, there's mess and there's sadness, and there's joy, and there's happiness, and there's sorrow, and there's confusion, and there's conflict. And, and Jesus shows us a way through that by dealing with ordinary people. Jesus himself being a man helps us navigate through it. And we can't lose sight that this book is about real people, ordinary people like you and I. They live in a different context but they're people, they're humans, just like you and I, and we can learn something about them when it comes to this topic of joy. And so this morning, we've lit our joy candle. Oh, no, we haven't. We've got to light it. We've got to light it. We can't have a joy weekend without a joy candle. What kind of Advent service would this be? Right? So, oh, sorry, that was like commentary. Um, but this candle is also called the shepherd candle because that's the night that the Angels appeared to the shepherds in the field when Jesus was born. And, and they said, we bring you good news of glad tidings. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a baby who is Christ the Lord. And the heavenly hosts joined them, and they rejoiced at the birth of Jesus. So it's called the joy candle or the Bethlehem candle. And so this weekend we talk and take up this topic of joy. But we want to look at it from a biblical perspective because I believe the Bible gives us the best understanding of what it means to be human and how we live as humans in this world full of chaos and terror and all kinds of mess. This word joy means something different than happiness. Writer and uh, just a really great writer, Adela Rogers St. John says, joy seems to me to be a step beyond happiness. 
Happiness is a sort of atmosphere where you can live sometimes when you're lucky. Joy is a light that fills you with hope and faith and love. And that would just sort of line up perfectly with what Scripture says. Joy, as the biblical writers write about it, is, some, is just this exuberance, this something beyond happy that creates like a movement inside of someone, sort of like heart leaping, your soul leaping with inside you. It's something that you can't contain. It's something that wells up within you. Even in some of the most saddest times, joy can exist. Happiness, on the other hand, is, is really dependent upon circumstances, the happenings around you. And it's dependent upon those happenings. Because if those things are going bad, well, then it's hard to be happy. But when things are going good, it's easy to be happy. Joy doesn't operate like that. Joy can actually exist in the midst of some of the most unhappy times. And at sometimes at the most unexpected times, joy can well up within us. Joy is much deeper expression than just happiness. And to get a better understanding of that, I want to turn to the story that you heard read just a few minutes ago from Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel is that third gospel in the New Testament written by Luke, who some say is one of the best historians in the Bible. Historians today would say he does a marvelous job of depicting what's going on and marking the history of these ordinary people. And this is one of the stories. You know, you heard read where Mary goes and visits her relative Elizabeth. But see, this is a different context. Again, if we're going to understand this ordinary situation, we need to understand the context which Mary comes because if we miss that, if we miss the point that Mary was a person living at a time in a culture with expectations upon her and her family has expect, if we miss all of that, we can miss some really spectacular things in this text, and we don't want to do that. You know, Dr. Brene Brown, she's a, a social psychologist. She wrote this book, Gifts of Imperfection. She says, sometimes we miss out on the bursts of joy because we're too busy chasing down extraordinary moments. Isn't that true? All right, we're looking for the big thing, the big thing. And when we find the big thing, well, then there's going to be true joy. And we miss, by doing that, these little bursts of joy that, that we're given every day that we miss because we're, we're looking for the big thing. And, and we, have to, we have to be sure that we don't miss the ordinary things. And I think when we study this text, I know I've done it, we, we gloss right over some of these ordinary things. And so as we turn to the text, I want to give you some background on this text so we can understand, and hopefully we don't miss the ordinariness of this text and miss the joy. Mary's going to see her relative Elizabeth, we're told. Now before this, we see that Mary was visited by the angel Gabriel, and Gabriel comes to her and says, Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He is to be the son of the Most High. And Mary is confused, and Mary is concerned, and Mary's like, doesn't know what to make of this. How is this possible, Mary said. Mary knows. She's a young girl, but she knows. She knows where babies come from, and she's like, I haven't done that. So how is this going to happen? And he says, the Holy Spirit will come over you. The, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and you will give birth to this son and he will be called the Son of God. And in fact, Mary, your relative Elizabeth is with child. Your elderly relative Elizabeth is with child. In fact, she's six months pregnant right now. And he says, never has there been a word of the Lord that has failed. 
And Mary says to him, may it be so. And the very next verse we see is this. And Mary gets up and she runs where? To Elizabeth. And she runs to Elizabeth and she hears these words from her relative Elizabeth as she walks in the door before she ever says a word. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped with joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary's response is to magnify the Lord, to sing this song that we've been told has been called the Magnificat, that Latin word that really is the word magnify in our language to make loud, to make great, to extol who he is. Mary's first reaction is to worship God. And her words say, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit, and she wouldn't have said this softly, right? Magnify is loud, just like Elizabeth would bless her loudly. She loudly says, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. See, now, if you're like me, when you read through this, you're like, wow. <laughs> right? I mean, you got to say wow, right? Wow. And, and you think about Mary's perspective, right? I mean, Right? You, you, you experience all this, and, and, and you, you would probably, maybe, rejoice. And Mary says, he has done great things for me. And we read that, and we're like, yes. She conceives, and she's a virgin. And not only that, she's given birth to the Son of God, to the Most High. I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, I'm sorry, Rosie, but this is bigger than being the mom of Aaron Rodgers. This is big. You're the, the mother of the Savior, of the Messiah. What an amazing thing God has done for her. See, when we get caught up into that, we miss these ordinary things that have happened. Ordinary things that I think we have to try and understand because I think they would help us see within our own daily lives the ordinary ways God shows up. The ordinary ways God gives us these little bursts of joy, if we'll just stop for a moment and watch and look. As we go back in the story, we see some things that are happening. Remember, Mary grows up in this first century Palestine community, this Jewish community. And in this community, it would have been forbidden for a young woman, unwed, to be found in her condition. She lived in this honor and shame culture. And this culture, the, the practice was this young woman would be betrothed to a young man. And at that time, they would have this ceremony, and they would be legally, in the eyes of the community, in the eyes of God, to be married. But they were called betrothed. And at that point, after that ceremony, the, the husband would go back to his father's house, and he would construct a room or rooms on his father's house. And then when that was finished, he would go back to his bride and take her to be with him in his father's house. And then they would be married, and there would be a marriage celebration. But in the meantime, they were betrothed, just as good as married. You start to understand maybe some of the things Mary's thinking about, right? Like, 
It's not just how is it possible that I, I've conceived and I, I'm not married, but how, how am I going to explain this to anyone? What, would, what are my parents going to think? What, what, what's the community going to think? What's my village going to think? What are people going to think? All of these things have to be going on in her head. Right? And so, where does she go? Right? Well, do you see what happened? The angel says, Elizabeth. Elizabeth was with child. The angel gives Mary her next steps. And when Mary says, great things. She doesn't say great things. She says great things that God has done. One of the great things that God does is send her to Elizabeth. And Mary recognizes that. What an amazing thing. Why is that an amazing thing? Because of the way she's greeted. Right? She could have walked into that house. Whose house? Zachariah's house. Zachariah is a priest that serves at the temple, that serves the law of God, that knows the law of God. And this woman, to be found pregnant outside of marriage to somebody that's not her betrothed would be a death sentence in this culture. That's whose house she was sent to. And when she walks in, she could have fully expected to hear, cursed are you, when she explained what had happened. How could you do this to Joseph and to your family to bring shame upon our family like this? But what does she hear? Blessed are you, Mary. Before she ever says a word, Elizabeth says, blessed are you. And right away, Mary has to feel a little bit at ease, right? What a great thing God has done for her. And, and Elizabeth goes on to say at the prompting of the Holy Spirit that, yeah, you didn't dream that last night. This, this wasn't a make-believe story. This happened. In fact, the Holy Spirit's told me, and, and the baby in my womb leapt with joy at, the, at just the sound of your voice because of who is in your womb and, and, and again, Mary's got to feel like, well, maybe I'm not crazy. Maybe I'm not nuts that, that, that I didn't just dream this. And what a great thing God has done for me. And why Elizabeth? Think about this. Elizabeth, that we're told in the chapter before, is old and elderly. And her and her husband, Zachariah, who's a priest, haven't been able to conceive. And now in this culture, she would have been sort of ostracized. People would have looked at her and said, well, there's something wrong with you. That's why you can't have a child. There's something wrong with you. And she would have been pointed at, and people would have pointed their fingers at her. And, and now, in that chapter, we're told, when she finds out that she's going to conceive, she says, the Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace. Not that she was disgraced, but taken away her disgrace among these people who don't understand God. Who better to understand Mary's predicament than Elizabeth? To understand the possible disgrace that she faces than Elizabeth. What a great thing God has done for Mary. Sending her to Elizabeth, just the right person she needed to meet. Just the right one to be reassured. To experience joy in the midst of her predicament. To experience a relationship with Elizabeth that would, I'm sure, carry on for a long time. What a great thing God has done for Mary. God does that all the time in our lives. If we'll just start to like stop for a second. Stop looking for all these big things and start looking for these little bursts of joy. And there's a way that we can cultivate that life 
I believe we can see in Mary's life, and Dr. Brene Brown kind of puts it concisely. She says, as she's interviewed people, and she's interviewed a lot of people, in one of her studies she interviewed a lot of people who've been affected by trauma, who've lost children and loved ones, who have been faced with genocide and, and destruction in their life, and, and she said, without exception, without exception, every person I interviewed who described living a joyful life, who described themselves as joyful, actively practiced gratitude and attributed their joyfulness to their great gratitude practice. The people who were the most joyful were the most thankful in the ordinary times. She said when they look back on these tragedies, when they look back in their life, they focused on the ordinary days and the interactions with the people that they were living with, that they had lost. They, they remembered the ordinary times. You know, we're told at the end of Luke that Mary treasured up all these things that were told in her heart and pondered them there. Mary led a life of gratitude, right? We see in that first chapter that she saw all these great things that God did for her. In fact, she goes on to recount all the great things that God had done for her people all the way back to Abraham and how God was faithful all the way and how God had done all these little things through great things, but also little things. And God had always shown up. And we're told that Mary continued to ponder all these things in her heart. Mary lived a life of gratitude and experiencing these little bursts of joy as she remembered these things. And what a joy it would have been to recount those to, to Luke and to, to tell him and so he would tell other people because she'd stored up all these things in her heart, remembering these things and living this grateful life and this joy-filled life. But it wasn't always like that. I mean, think about this day. We're told she stood at the foot of the cross and watched her son crucified. She sat at the foot of the cross and watched her firstborn son, beaten and bloody, mocked and spit on, watched him die on a cross. Can you expect her emotion that day to be joy? It had to be filled with the deepest sorrow as she sat and watched her son die on a cross. Mary was human. Mary was a mother. And, and you're telling me that, that she would just be joyful on that day? Wouldn't that be cruel to tell somebody who's lost someone that you just need to read the story and that all that sadness will just go away? I can't imagine that happening. But I can imagine that night after he's dead that they're, they're gathering together to comfort one another. Right, kind of like we do when, when a loved one dies and, and we gather the family together and everybody comes in and, and we sit around and we weep together and we remember this person, but something strange happens in the midst of that, right? We start telling stories about past Christmases and, and the way dad used to give us that look and the year that dad gave mom a vacuum cleaner at Christmas and we start to laugh and we start to have this like joy that rises up within us as we remember them and some people will go, what are you doing laughing? This is not a joyous occasion, what's wrong with you? And we're like, but, but this is wrong? No, it's not wrong. That is a gift. 
That's those bursts of joy that God gives us in the midst of those circumstances, some of the most horrendous circumstances of our life where we're the saddest in our lives. God can fill us with joy. Not happiness, but joy. We can be sad and we can cry and we can weep, and in the middle of that, we can still experience joy. And that's what God desires for us. In that night, Mary, I could see her around with all the other women and talking about Jesus and and talking about and weeping about what's happened to him and and telling the other women, I can remember when he was 12 years old and we went to the temple in Jerusalem and we left with all these other people and we thought he was with us, but he wasn't. And we turned around and he's nowhere to be found. And he's 12. And so we run back to Jerusalem to find him. And where's he at? He's in the temple talking with all these teachers of the law. And we're amazed. And we're looking at him. We're like, Jesus, we were worried half to death about you. Do you not know what you've done? And he looks at us and says, well, where else did you expect to find me? And I thought Joseph was going to kill him. She said, but I had to step in between him. But, you know, he survived that day. And remembering the things that the angel had said and retelling those stories to the women and talking about the hope that she had that praying that night and that night after that with all expectation that God would be faithful to his word, that his servant would not see decay, praying and hoping that it would all be true. And then to be rewarded that Easter morning with her son coming back to life. And the deepest sadness turned into the most exuberant joy. Because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And because he has risen from the dead, those who believe in him, we're told, will believe in, will be raised to new life as well. Why do we have joy? Why can we have joy? Because there's hope. Because Jesus Christ has risen. And so while there's sadness in this world, there's hope that one day all the sadness will be gone, will be wiped away. But until, the, until that time, there are these ordinary times where Jesus shows up to console us, to comfort us in our times of grief. And who better than a man who's familiar with sorrow, familiar with grief? He understands what it is to be human, and he writes about it in his book here through his men and women that relay this story to us. He's a man familiar with what you and I are walking through, but he's also a man of great joy. Why? Because he's now made a way for you and I to be in relationship with him. He's now made a way for you and I to experience his joy in this world full of sorrow and pain and chaos. What the psalmist writes come true, right? Weeping may last through the night, but the joy comes with the morning. G.K. Chesterton says this. He says, joy is central. Sadness is peripheral to the Christian. Joy is central. Sadness is peripheral. Delirious happiness is not what real and abiding joy looks like. Joy can exist even when a depression passes through it. Joy can exist because Jesus has risen from the grave. 
because he has made a way for us to be in a relationship with him. Jesus came not to establish a new religion, but to establish a relationship. Show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. There's joy in relationship. I would argue there's no such thing as joy outside of relationship. And true joy exists when in relationship with Jesus. Because there is true reason to be hopeful, to be joy-filled, even in the midst of sorrow. Because Jesus has come, not to establish a new religion, but to establish a relationship. In just our every ordinary lives, each and every day, Jesus shows up to remind us that he is risen, to remind us that he is God, to remind us that there's never been a word of God that has failed. And he will come again and wipe away every tear. But in the meantime, he gives us these opportunities to have these little burst joy moments, these joy moments that we can rejoice in as we look around us this Christmas and see our family with us. And we can rejoice that everyone is here and we don't have to be dependent upon everything going perfectly. Even in the midst of arguments over politics, we can sit back and just try to laugh, right? And, and, and not be dismayed and not be despaired by what's going on, but we can be joy-filled because guess what? My family's here. They're actually here. We can rejoice. Remember, Christians, joy is central. Sadness is peripheral. But the sad news is that outside of Jesus, sadness is central and joy is peripheral. And so we've been given the task of sharing that joy with the world. And one of the ways we get to do that here is not just through our everyday lives, but through our mission partners that we partner with around the world. We've seen Ninos Convalor and Josiah Venture, and this week we're going to be introduced to this church in Norway, the Lutheran Church in Norway, where you'll see just ordinary men and women, ordinary people coming alongside ordinary people and sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And you'll see everything in all of these stories. What you'll find is every one of the people that you see in these stories that are, that are doing something in these areas have been moved by sorrow, by sadness. As they look at the condition in these countries and the, and the lives of these people, they're moved by the sadness and the longing to bring joy and happiness into their lives, to bring true peace and love into their lives. And so this morning, I want to play this video for you from Torkild. And he's a man who's ministering over in Norway. And if you'll just look in these ordinary times, I think you can see the joy in his face. Our goal is to establish congregations around Norway so the majority of Norwegians can be a part of a church, or one of our churches, within drive of one hour and a half. Everyone has to be willing to drive to reach us. There are remote areas it's very hard to reach, and those areas we can reach by live streaming of our worship services. We today have five congregations and a startup. We have a clergy of five active. And we have the only pastor training program outside Church of Norway. We are deeply thankful that you were willing to stand with us during these years. 
Other Lutheran groups have been in Norway for 150 years. Not any one of them have any program running for start for pastor training. Because if you have pastors trained, there is a future. And we also have to train our kids to tithe. If my children don't learn to tithe, there will never be a church for my grandchildren. So the things with the Messiah Church that uh, draw me closer to it or get me interesting, uh, interested in it was the pastors that, that took care of me and that they really wanted to walk the steps with me. And they really cared if I was attending to church or not. They, they kind of took their pastoral, I don't know how, what you can call it, but their pastoral work seriously. It was, it really meant something for them that I was there and that I attended to the church and for my faith. And they would walk me through these processes and help me with my questions. The reason why we chose to stay there was that they had a great love for their neighbor and for God. And um, we have truly found a home in Messiahshik in a place where we are grown in our faith. Of the current initiatives we now have, I would like to mention Olsen. That's a city on the west coast of Norway. It's a city where we just have a handful of people, not enough to start a congregation, a mission site. But there are a number of Latvian foreign workers. The Latvians are to a large degree Lutherans, members of a Lutheran sister church, a sister church for the LCMS and for us in Latvia. They're, they don't go to church. There is no church for them. So we said, what, let us try something we don't know if there was ever done in church history. To make a church that is Norwegian language with Norwegian liturgy one Sunday and a Latvian worship service next Sunday, alternating. We have different languages and the liturgy is different. So we're struggling. I've, uh, I've shared it with your mission committee, how we were thinking of reducing and closing down perhaps the effort. A few days before I met your mission committee, I got a text message from the Latvian pastor going to have a worship service in Olesund saying, the coming Sunday, we will have 12 baptisms and four confirmations. And I said to your mission board, wow, we cannot close down this effort. But still, we are struggling. It's not a success and it's not a failure. We don't know how it's going. But we are very thankful that your church is willing to stand with us and provide us the seed money, the, the, the resources we need in order to make it happen and try it. So we will report to you how it's going and we will start up new sites with the help of uh, different churches around the world. And your church has been so faithful to us. And we are very, very thankful for what your church is doing with us, helping us with. Thank you. Could you see the like joy in his face and in his eyes? I think one of the things that we listened to in that video, I think it's remarkable. He talks about a handful of people and five people and 12 people. And you know, we live in a land of the megachurch. We live in a land where there's 20,000 and 30,000 and 40,000 people and thousands of people being baptized, and that's amazing. And we hear stories like this, and it's like, yeah, that's really nice. But it's amazing in these little ordinary ways that God continues to show up, and we get to be a part of that. Through your generous gifts, through the ministry that we do, we get to be a part of that. And we can rejoice with Torquil and the church 
that God is still doing great things for us. What an opportunity to rejoice this Christmas. Would you pray with me?